And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, and the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, They did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give them the vineyard, give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Let's pray real quick. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us. We thank you that we can study it, that we can know your will, know your truth by just looking at these uh, pages of scripture. God, we pray that you'd be with us as we study them, that uh, the message that comes forth would not be a message that uh, man has crafted, but that your Holy Spirit would apply to our hearts. God, we pray that your gospel would go forth in this city. We pray that your word would be proclaimed. We pray that your authority would be established here, Lord. You are the authority in Clearwater, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, we're getting into the last section of Luke, and something just to point out that Luke typically does throughout his gospel. He does it five times. He'll provide a summary statement that indicates that we're moving into sort of a new chapter, a new section of what's going on. And so you'll, you'll notice that, that we see that uh, in the first few verses of this, while Jesus comes and cleanses the temple, he's sort of setting up what he's about to do for the next week. So uh, we're in the final section of this, and uh, this final section, you know, we're going to be in Jerusalem the whole rest of the time of our study in Luke, and this will take us probably to uh, mid-August or, or something like that to, to finish out uh, the book in this section. Um, so what do we see in this, in this first little summary statement in verses 45 to 48? 
uh, we see Jesus has entered the temple. Last week he was approaching Jerusalem, and now he has come into Jerusalem. And the first thing he does, we shouldn't be surprised, he goes to the temple. Uh, Just like when he was a, a child, when his parents were looking for him, where was he? He was in his father's house. He was at the temple um, conversing with the teachers of the law, uh, no doubt asking some very difficult questions for them, even at a young age. Um, so he's in the temple, and what he does is something probably quite unexpected, uh, considering the crowd that he's been sort of garnering. People have been expecting him to establish a physical kingdom, to come and, and to start as essentially a revolution against Rome and to take back physical physical control of the nation of Israel. And that doesn't happen. The first thing he does isn't militaristic. Uh, it's spiritual. He goes to the temple and he cleanses it. He drives out those that are there selling. He does this for a purpose. It wasn't that uh, that what they were doing was wrong. In fact, they're doing a couple of things. This is They're leading up to the Passover and people are coming from all over Israel and they're coming to do a couple of things. Pay their temple tax which is, you know, called for in the book of Exodus and Leviticus for them to pay the temple tax, um, you know, to keep up the, the, the temple and to make sure it's running appropriately and, and taking care of things appropriately. Um, and also to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So those are good things. Those are good things to do. And in fact, they have set up some, some conveniences for people uh, that have come from a long way to, you know, translate their money because the money that they gave to the temple had to be in the temple currency. It couldn't be, you know, a, a Greek currency, it couldn't be a Roman currency, it had to be the temple currency. So they had to exchange it for temple currency. So they had to do that. Um, and they also had to get a proper sacrifice. So, uh, you know, a sacrifice that hadn't been, uh, hadn't been ridden or a sacrifice that was pure, a particular sacrifice. So a number of those things were available uh, when you arrived at the temple as, as a convenience. And this wasn't a bad thing. So it wasn't a bad thing that they were doing this. It was, you know, just a manner of convenience for the continued worship of the Lord in the temple. Uh, so that's, that's okay. But what's wrong is that individuals were exploiting that convenience. Now, you guys have all experienced this. I know that you have because you've gone to gas stations and you've purchased things that would normally be at Sam's like 50 cents. And there, that's like $1.50. So you're going to get a Dr. Pepper or something. You know, when you buy the convenience store, it's going to be three times at least the price that you would get it at the grocery store. There's a price for convenience in a capitalistic world. We pay what the market's going to pay at a certain location, and convenience has a value to it. And so uh, that's not okay when you're dealing with a religious uh, a worship of the one true God, right? You can't exploit convenience just because uh, someone has come from miles and miles away on long journeys by foot to this place to worship the one true God in a proper way. You can't exploit that by charging a, uh, a higher exchange rate on the temple uh, currency or uh, charging you know, extra, extra fees or whatever it is to, to purchase these sacrifices. And that's what was going wrong. So Jesus is driving out these people for exploiting uh, those that were coming to worship God. He drives them out. Um, religion is not about making a buck, okay? Uh, and that's what they had made this into. They had made worship into, uh, into a money-making scheme. And that's not okay in God's eyes. It's okay to you know, translate it at a fair price, but it's not okay to exploit people when they're in their time of need. 
especially when they're going to worship the Lord. And what does he say? He says, you've made my house into a den of robbers. My house shall be a house of prayer. The temple was, was made for prayer. We saw that actually at the beginning of our study in Luke. Uh, I don't think any of you were there. It was at my house, and I think maybe Tim was there. He's moved on. So, uh, and we were studying about uh, Zechariah, and Zechariah came to the temple, and he was offering morning. He was there offering the evening prayer, I think, in that time. But the primary purpose of the temple was simply to uh, administer communication uh, corporately for the people of Israel with God. And so it's a reflection of that. It's both a place where nationally and personally the people of Israel could come and communicate with God and to be in his presence, to present their requests to him, to pray to him. Um, and so that's the function of the temple, simply that, just to communicate to God. The temple structure itself uh, tells us something about who God is and who we are. It's it's a tiered uh, sort of increasing of holiness as you enter the temple. The, the outside is a little more earthy. As you get into the holy place, it's, it's a little more uh, gold and ornate, and it sort of pictures the skies and the heavens. And as you get into the holy of holies, uh, it's even more pure, and only one person goes in there once a year. So there's this, this distinction showing that God is a holy God, and that men are sinners. So these two things are being communicated by the temple. We have to approach God um, through a certain manner. We have to uh, approach him in purity. And so if you're going to be on the temple, you had to be pure. If you're going to enter the holy of holies, you have to be the one high priest that was, had gone through many purity rituals to communicate with God. And that's all a lot of structure, but its basic communication is simply this, that God is a holy God and that man is sinful. That's all it's communicating. And the temple's function, its, it's, it's function for the people of Israel was simply to communicate that this is a place, this is a house of prayer. And so what had happened then is that these individuals had turned it into a den of robbers, a place, a marketplace is what they turned it into. And, and you know, what happens when you do that, I mean, just think of if you're, uh, you're a worshiper and you come to worship the one true God and your leaders are saying, well, you, you know, I'm going to jack up the price here, I'm going to jack up the price there. You start to get a picture of your view and your understanding of God is shaped by the way your leaders are operating with you. And so you begin to sort of have this idea that, well, you know, religion is just, I got to pay this thing and whatever. I got to do these deals. And it becomes a stress rather than a joy, which is what it should have been for these people. The leaders were exploiting them and making it even worse. So the leaders missed the purpose of the temple. It's no wonder that they're missing that Jesus is walking their midst, that God is in their midst. We shouldn't be surprised by that because they're flat out missing the purpose of the temple itself. They don't understand that it's a place of prayer. They think it's a place to exploit people and to steal from them. And so the worship of God has not been shown true. Um, so Jesus comes in, he drives out uh, all those who are selling in the temple. And uh, he says, you know, my house should be a house of prayer. And the next two verses say, basically give us his schedule for the next week. Uh, and it's simply this. He says, he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but couldn't because everyone was hanging on his words. So for the next week, all he's doing, he's coming into the temple, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's going out of the city, he's resting, comes into the temple the next day, teaching, preaching, going out, resting, all week long until the Passion. 
So we'll see that as we study. Um, and throughout that whole time, all these men, these leaders, are trying to kill him. They're trying to kill him because he's upsetting their situation. They're making money off of this thing, and they don't like that he's, you know, twisting things around. And, you know, the fact is he's <laughs> turning it back to where it should be, but they can't see that because they're blinded by their greed. They're blinded by the greed. So that's, that's, the, that's sort of the context of where we're going to be living as we walk through Jerusalem and, and Christ's ministry in Jerusalem over the next weeks. Um, so Jesus is going to be in the temple preaching and teaching. <clears throat> so what the rest of this message is, is about, it's, it's one day that, that Jesus is in the temple. So one of those days that he's in the temple, he's preaching, and this message is simply about uh, authority and Christ's authority specifically. Uh, what we'll see throughout this is, is a simple message, that Jesus has authority over all things. Authority is important in Luke, and we've seen throughout the book of Luke that, that Christ does have that authority over all things. We're going to see it again today. We've seen throughout Luke that he has authority over death, over demons, over disease, over nature even. We've seen he has authority over all these things through the miracles that he has uh, performed throughout uh, Israel and, and Jerusalem. We've seen that Christ has authority, and he's going to show it even more uh, today. Authority is important in, in Luke. Uh, authority is important in general. I mean, if you think about uh, your job, you know, essentially you've got people in authority over you, and you don't receive a task to, to do unless they have, uh, one, decided that you're qualified to do that task, and that, that they need you to do that task, and they've commissioned you to do that. So um, you receive tasks that you are, are uh, from those in authority above you uh, when you are able to do them, and they recognize that you are able to take up what they had been doing, that you can do it appropriately. And um, it's interesting, you know, God, as, you know, as we're looking at the temple and its purpose, God had given some individuals authority. He'd given them a place in which to uh, to operate and, and effectively communicate a relationship with God, and people had exploited it. They exploited a position of authority, and we have to be careful about that as leaders even today. God has given us places of authority, and we can't exploit that for our own gain. We have to use it as the one who gave us authority would have used it. So uh, again, back to that you know, example of, of being at work, if someone gives me a task to do, they have a certain way they want to be doing it. They're the authority over my task that I do. So I prepare spreadsheets as an accountant, okay? So I've got all kinds of pro- projects and things that people give me. Um, and they don't give me those without uh, understanding that I can accomplish the task that they're setting out. And they understand a way that they want it to be done, and they communicate that to me. And if I don't do it appropriately, they're going to let me know, Right? So people in authority give you a task because they've determined that you're able to do it. And what we see in Jesus is that he is able to do all these things. He has all authority and he shows that uh, throughout his life. So um, the leaders come up to him on this particular day, uh, getting into chapter 20. He says, one day he's at the, at the temple teaching um, and preaching the gospel. And the, and the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders, this is a unique cluster of individuals, Tons of, you know, basically all of the leadership, whether priestly or just civil, they're all coming to him in unity. So a a unified front against him. Um, And they're saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Tell us who gave you this authority. 
so, you know, they're obviously looking at the things that Jesus has done. They're, they've seen him, you know, enter, the, enter Jerusalem and the way he did, people proclaiming him as king. And then they see him come into the temple and, and turn over their, their, you know, the way they've got things set up. They're saying, by what authority do you think you can come in here and just do that and upset what's going on? And he asked them a question, a very important question that we'll look at uh, a little bit. He says, was the, John, the baptism of John, was it, was it from heaven or was it from men? And they get stumped because John is a very important individual. Uh, one thing that I have loved learning through the, the study of Luke is about John and his importance. I didn't have as much appreciation for John the Baptist until going through this study of Luke. <clears throat> um, John the Baptist is, is a, a powerful individual and uh, had a, had a huge following. I mean, he's basically a, a rock star, and we'll see that in their response uh, tonight. I uh, just wanted to say a few things about John so we understand uh, his connections to Jesus, because the fact is you cannot separate John the Baptist and his ministry from Jesus and his ministry. They're intricately tied to one another. John speaks about Jesus, and Jesus approves John's message. They are connected. They were connected from the womb. You, you know that story, right? When uh, when Mary comes into the home of Elizabeth, and in their wombs, uh, in in Elizabeth's womb, John is jumping because the presence of the Lord has come in. Okay, so they are intricately connected. Their ministries cannot be separated. So when Jesus asked this question, he asked it very purposely. He's saying. John the Baptist, you agree with him or, or no? Because just wanted to see if we, if we can clear that up, then I'll let you know by what authority I'm doing these things. Let's just ask, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think? Yes or no? You agree with him? Um, so John the Baptist, powerful individual. Um, I've been very encouraged by him. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 3 is uh, just an amazing passage that encourages me um, and this is about John and how God came to him in his situation. It says this, and it's, it's, you'll just have to bear with me. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of names here, okay? It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonotitis, uh, and Lysanias, sorry, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the Baptist in the desert. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, God doesn't work in the power structures and authorities of our day. Did you hear that list of individuals that were in authority at the time of John the Baptist's ministry? I mean, you hear about the Roman leadership, you hear about the Jewish leadership, you hear about the regional leadership, you hear about all these people and the things that they're ruling and doing. And where is the word of the Lord coming? Not to those people. It's coming to John the Baptist in the desert when he's eating locusts and honey and, you know, wearing these crazy clothes and stuff. It comes to him in the desert. The word of the Lord uh, doesn't operate according to the authority structures of our day, and we need to know that as people. Um, we see that in John the Baptist. So what, what is John the Baptist's message about Jesus? I said that John the Baptist's message, uh, he speaks it clearly about who Jesus is and what he, what he did. He says this in uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. This is how powerful John the Baptist's ministry was. People were asking him if he was the Christ. 
he had such a powerful ministry to people. People were like coming out to him from Jerusalem to the Jordan to be baptized in this and to hear his teaching. Like they're traveling by foot to hear this guy and they think he is the Messiah. So they ask him in verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. His winning, winning fork in it is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist is speaking about not himself, even though he had this huge, powerful ministry that's happening, he's saying, there's one after me that is going to be even more powerful than I. And we've seen that throughout Jesus's uh, ministry. John says a few things, and I'll just list them out from this that, that we can glean. <clears throat> he says Jesus is more powerful. So John, though he was very powerful, he says Jesus is going to be even more powerful. We don't see John doing miracles. We do see Jesus doing many miracles. Jesus is more powerful. Jesus is uh, deserving of worship. John says, um, the thongs of his sandals I am unworthy to untie. In fact, I, I need to serve this one that is coming after me is what he's saying. And we've heard him say later, I must decrease and he must increase. John has a, a, a clear understanding of who Jesus is, that he is more powerful than him. He understands he's a forerunner to the Christ. He's not the Christ. He also says Jesus' baptism is greater. John is, is preaching a baptism of repentance. You might remember the story in Acts when some people come to a number of uh, uh, folks that, I can't remember which town they're in, but they, they come to him and say, well, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You have, which, which baptism have you received? And say, well, we were baptized in the baptism of John. Well, that's a different one than being baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's different. You're, you're being baptized according to uh, a tradition of, uh, uh, actually, a, a, a temple a, a, a tradition still connected to the temple. Uh, yeah, yeah, Cornelius, that's right. Um, and so uh, he was living in this transitional period and, and his baptism was good and, and Christ even subjected himself to it. Uh, but Jesus' baptism is, is more powerful. It's one that when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and starts taking over our lives, not just repenting of our sins being washed clean, it's repenting and being filled by God. And so... Um, he comes with one that's of more power than, uh, than John's baptism even. We also see that Jesus comes as a judge. Uh, Simeon even prophesied this over him. He said, you will cause the rising and falling of many men in Israel. Um, and in this passage that I just read, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's, he's going to clear his threshing floor. He's going to bring people into his family. And he's also going to uh, burn away the chaff. So Jesus is coming. Uh, John understood it to be judgment. We understand that Jesus uh, came in his first coming, not in judgment. His second coming will be in judgment when he comes again. Um, and so Jesus, we see, is more powerful. He deserves worship. His baptism is greater. And he, he comes as a judge. Um, we, we see in John the Baptist's ministry, the, these are the things that John was saying to people that thought he was the Christ. He's saying, no, like the one after me, coming like right after me, uh, he's way better, way, way better. You don't understand. And so they're tied intricately. And again, uh, we see Jesus uh, saying of John the Baptist, there is no man greater 
than John the Baptist. In, uh, in Luke chapter uh, 7, verse 28, I want to get the, the wording right for you, so I'm not throwing you off there. It says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Christ and John the Baptist are intricately tied. Jesus accepts John's message. He is baptized with the baptism that John is offering. Uh, he will also establish his, his own, like I've said. Um, so if you reject John the Baptist, you are rejecting Christ. John the Baptist and Christ aren't, you can't separate them. They're, they're both working in the plan of God. You can't accept one and reject the other. You can't accept the other and reject the one. They're, they're part of one plan, okay? So their, their message is a unified message. And uh, so that's the, that's the thing that these leaders are stumped with, right? They're saying, um, so John the Baptist, like if we say that it's from heaven, then, uh, well, we don't want to say that because, you know, then, then we're, we're agreeing with Jesus. So uh, if we say it's not from heaven, if it's from men, then the people are going to stone us because John is so powerful, okay? That's how powerful John's ministry was, that when they say this, that when they are approached with this question, they can't say no to it since they've rejected it. They can't say no because the people are going to take up stones and kill them. Like, that's how powerful John the message is. They're going to just kill their leaders if they say no to this question. So um, John the Baptist and Jesus uh, tied uh, so tightly together. So they answered that they don't know. That's all I can come up with. Uh, I don't know. No comment. Take the fifth. Um, they, they just don't want to say a word. And so Jesus says, Neither will I tell you the, by the, the authority by which I do these things. Um, and then in his style, he tells a parable that sort of answers the question anyways, if they're willing to hear it. Um, and the question is, are they willing to hear the parable uh, that's spoken? So he doesn't give them a direct answer, but he does give them an answer. And uh, even by not answering, you know, he's, he's claimed that, that he is from heaven as well um, in, in his statements here. So, <clears throat> so we'll look at this parable that, that Jesus says uh, uh, that Jesus speaks to them as, as responding to this, this back and forth between him and the leaders. Uh, and what we see here is that Jesus is uh, the rejected stone. So uh, let me read through this. And um, yeah, you know, essentially the, the main statement that he's saying in this parable is that I was sent from God and, and you guys are out to kill me. Okay, before I read through the whole passage again, that's the basic message that he is stating. So um, let's just walk through this. Uh, uh, a little bit at a time and, and see what's happening. Okay, so he says, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. Okay, so the man is God, right, in this picture. God lends out a vineyard. Okay, in the Old Testament, uh, frequently you will see the vineyard being described as Israel. So this is a connection that when he starts saying this parable, he's saying, okay, there's a man, he lends out a vineyard to some tenants. Bells are going to be going off in their heads thinking, okay, he's talking about Israel. Um, and so we need to pay attention to exactly what he's saying here. Um, so what's he going to say about us? It says, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent away empty-handed. And he sent another servant 
but they also beat, beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent out yet a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. You'll notice the progression. Each one, there's something added. It, it gets worse and worse for these, these uh, individuals, these servants. And what we understand is that these are the prophets. Time and time again, God is sending a prophet to speak to his people, to point them back to the purpose of their faith, the truth about why the temple's set up and what it, what it portrays, the truth that righteousness comes by faith, not by doing these acts. These acts are just a symbol again to show us that God is holy and that we are not. That's all they are. They're just a symbol to show that and that our faith is in a God who saves. It's not in our works. It's not in our sacrifices that we do. Those are just a picture of the reality that we're operating in. Our faith is in God. God is the one who saves. We cannot save ourselves by doing sacrifices. Uh, And that's what these prophets would continually say to the people. Listen, this temple, these, these things, God could care less about that, especially in the way that you're offering it, because you're offering it uh, in an unclean manner. And, and while you offer this, you'll go back and you'll serve your idols, saying, this, this doesn't make sense. I want your heart. I want your faith in me. I'm the God who saves. That's what this all was supposed to communicate. So that's a message the prophets kept sending to him. Listen, your father cares for you. Put your faith in him. Stop trusting your works and stop trusting your idols. Trust in God. He is your provider. Okay, so he sends these prophets again and again, these servants to his people, to his vineyard to say, look to the father. Look to him. He is the one who saves we see in Second Chronicles uh, thirty-six fifteen to sixteen the the manner in which uh, the people normally treated these prophets that were sent. It says, "The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers." despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. At that point is when soon after Jerusalem falls to Babylon and the people go into exile, okay? God was fed up with sending his servants over and over and over and no one was hearing their message. They kept serving their idols and serving their religion rather than serving their God and their Savior. So the people and the leadership has rejected the prophets. And that's what he's saying. Your vineyard and your leadership, they've rejected my servants that I have sent to you. (laughs) And this is where it gets even more powerful. In verse uh, verse 13, we sort of see the owner of the vineyard slow down and, and take a breather and think a moment. He says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I've sent my servants. I've sent them again and again. I mean, three is just a representation. He sent so many prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, to the north and to the south and to the whole kingdom, to people around the kingdom. He sent his prophets over and over and over again, and they will not listen. You can hear the owner of the vineyard. You can hear God thinking, What am I going to do? And he knows exactly what he's going to do. He knew, he knew it was going to happen from the beginning of time. He's going to send his son. 
It says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But what happens? When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, and listen to the twisted logic in this, okay? It says, this is my heir, or this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. (laughs) Does that even make sense? Like, how twisted have you become that you don't even understand what you're talking about? Okay, an owner who is presumably alive since he's sending people to you has, has now sent his son and you say, oh, well, if I kill the heir, then surely I'll just inherit it because I've been working it, you know, and it'll just come to me. But the truth is that the owner is still alive. This is the God of the living, right? Okay, so their logic is that if I just kill the heir, then, then I can take over this. All right? And things will be good. I'll take over the vineyard. I'll take control of it. And you can see that picture in these, this leadership that we're seeing as he's cleansing the temple and preaching to them, right? They're so caught up on the way they're doing religion, the way they're exploiting and the, their position and their authority. They like the greetings in the streets. They like the people's subject, uh, subjecting, uh, being subject to them. They like all that. And they're, they're just stroking their egos over and over and saying, well, uh, if this guy's threatening our position, then maybe we should just, you know, like knock him off. Maybe God will just not see that. And, and then we'll just, we'll have it. It'll be ours. So twisted. They've lost the vision that their God is alive. They think he's dead. Oh man. They're, they're totally missing it. They they don't know what the temple is about anymore. They don't know that their God is the God of living. They don't know that their, their God is the only one that can save them. They have put their trust in idols and the works of man. So we see them, you know, this statement, and, and as he's saying this, uh, uh, it says, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, they're going to kill him. And then verse 15, it says, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the people hearing this say, surely not. Surely not. (laughs) The leaders at this point are hearing what's going on. They understand uh, what's happening here that, 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 you know, they know in their hearts that they, we've already been told, right, that their heart is to kill the individual, to kill Jesus. We've already seen that in, at the very first of our chapter. That's what they, they're, they're planning to do for the rest of the week is find a way to kill him. And then Jesus comes forth with this parable and says, you know, God sent these prophets to Israel over and over and over, and now he has sent me. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill me? And that's exactly what they do. That's why in verse 19, we see the scribes and the chief priests seeking to lay hands on him because they know that he had told this parable about him. They know it. They know it in their hearts. They say, yep, that's, he's, he's, he's getting at us. But they stick with it. Surely not, the people say, surely the Lord would never forsake Israel in this way. His leadership, surely he would never change it. <laughs> the truth is they have already forsaken their God and God is moving on with a new covenant in Christ Jesus, a perfect one uh, where we can be reconciled to the Father through Jesus and Jesus alone. Um, 
what Jesus moves on to say this after the people say, surely he cannot do this. He looks directly at them, looks directly at the crowd and says this. Why then is it written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? God always is working through the one that's been rejected. We see it from the first uh, the first kings that were selected, right? Saul is the one that put, that's put up first, and, and he, you know, basically runs from the Lord and doesn't obey him. And then, then uh, Samuel is told to go anoint another king, right? You remember this story in, in 1 Samuel 16? He goes to Jesse, and he's got seven sons lined up, and they all walk before him. They're like, eh, God says no. God says no. God says no. God says no. And Samuel thought, like, surely one of these guys is going to be it. Like, they look great. You know, they're handsome and look powerful and strong. And all seven of them go by. And Samuel's like, Jesse, you got another son or what? Because the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. He says, well, yeah, you know, I got, uh, you know, he's over there. uh, He's taking care of some sheep, you know. And Samuel calls him over. And he says, yep, that's the one. That's the anointed, the rejected one, the stone, the builders rejected. The people thought a king is supposed to look in this particular manner, but God thought, no, I want that man. He's after my heart. So David is the last of eight brothers. He wasn't even summoned to come be a part of this thing. They thought, no, there's no way. He's the youngest. He's ruddy and, uh, you know, there's no way that's him. But that's exactly who God had chosen in that situation. And the same is true here. Individuals, again, are rejecting God's anointed. They're rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And Christ has shown himself, again, to be authority over death, demons, disease, nature. He's proclaimed himself to be king as he walked in the triumphal entry. People are asking him, you know, are praising him as king. And the leadership says, hey, rebuke your disciples. And he says, no, I can't. Because if I did that, the stones would cry out. So, you know. Yeah, I am the king, essentially is what he's saying. We saw the imagery of that over and over. Christ has shown himself to be the authority. The leaders just continue to seek to destroy him. The leadership has rejected John the Baptist, and they reject Christ's authority. And so the question that comes to us today is is a simple one. As we look at Jesus and his ministry, as we look at the way he operates, we have to ask ourselves this question— Is Jesus our authority or not? You see, Jesus has authority over all things. We see this clearly from Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 to 20. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through blood shed on the cross. Do you hear 
the many times that he says all things, all things, anything, everything, sovereign, supreme over all of it. That is Christ. He has all authority. Will we say, yes, I agree with that and I submit myself to Christ's authority and his alone? Are we willing to submit to Christ in that as individuals? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. This quote from uh, A.W. Tozer came up this week as I was studying, and it, it says this. It says, The experiences of men who have walked with God in olden times agree to teach that the Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has first conquered him. The degree of blessing enjoyed by any man will correspond exactly with the completeness of God's victory over him. If God is going to be victorious in our lives, if he's going to bless our lives, we have to give ourselves fully to him, submit us completely to his authority in our lives. We have to recognize that Jesus is supreme over all things, that he has the best things in mind for me, and I'll subject myself to whatever he has for me. The level to which we do that is the level to which God is going to bless the things that we do. We have to submit to Jesus as the authority. We can't uh, be like these leaders who put their trust in their idols, who put their trust in their, uh, in their traditions. We have to put our trust in Christ and Christ alone. He is our Savior. Same thing, we have to ask that as a church. Are we willing to submit to Jesus' authority? In the same way that the temple was a, a place where corporate worship could be uh, encountered and as a people they could come together and commune with God and say prayers to him and, and uh, intercede for one another and pray for each other. The same way church is about corporate communion with God. And when we lose sight of that, the church loses its authority in the kingdom of God. We have to understand that church isn't about uh, checking off something on our list that we did that. It's not about keeping up traditions that we've, that we've made. It's about communing with God as a corporate group of people, encouraging and strengthening each other that we might recognize Jesus as the head. Church is about corporate communion with God. Our whole purpose is, in functioning as a body together is to encourage one another in love and good deeds, to point each other to the head, which is Christ. We read that even in, in First Colossians. Christ is the head of the church. No man is the head of the church. Only Christ is the head of the church. And so anything that we do that is pointing uh, people away from Jesus as being the head, something we got to cut off. Jesus is the head. And we have to be pointing each other to that. That's why there's a myriad of, of gifts in, uh, in the body of believers. We each have a different gift, and each of those gifts are used for the equipping of the saints, pointing us again to Jesus as the head. No person is given all the gifts. They could somehow reign in, in pride and authority over other people, and they could look to, to them because then you just get another priesthood. That's what happens, Okay. The, the gifts are distributed among the believers that we might encourage and strengthen one another and point each other to the head, which is Christ. So the question again today is, who is the authority in your life? The question for us as a church is, who is the authority in our life? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? It's a simple question we have to answer day after day. 
Who am I subjecting myself to? Am I subjecting myself to my own desires and my own passions? Or am I subjecting myself to Christ's authority and to what he wants to do in my life today? That's the question that we're left with today. It's a question we each have, you know, have experienced as, as Christians. At one point in our lives, we recognize that we're sinners and that we're hopeless without Christ. We recognize that our only hope is in giving our lives over to Jesus, the only one that can reconcile the sin that we have to restore us to relationship with the Father. We said it earlier as we were praying during worship, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's a fact. But whether you place your authority in him or not is going to determine from which position you will proclaim that truth. Will you proclaim that truth uh, from a place uh, where you have followed your own desires and and God has given you over to them to, to complete separation from him? Or will you follow that in a place where you get to worship and praise God with the saints that have placed their faith in Christ Jesus alone? That's where we want to be. We want to be with those that made the decision in this life to place their authority, to place their lives under the authority of Christ and not under any man. Let's pray together as we close. God, we do thank you for the way in which you came Lord, you have all authority in heaven and earth. You've been, given it, you've been given it by your Father. It's yours. We thank you, Jesus, that you don't lord that over us, though. Your operation wasn't to force uh, some means of restoration to you down our throats, Lord, you came in humility. You took 12 guys that didn't know, didn't have a clue what you were doing and you washed their feet. You subjected yourself to servanthood to them and and to us. God, we, we cannot, our brains cannot comprehend that, that, that God would come in the form of man that he would give his life willingly. He, he wasn't killed by anybody. People might have carried out the act, but he was in complete control of every moment of his life. And he gave it up willingly. Lord, we, we don't, there's no way to comprehend the sacrifice that that is. God, we thank you We thank you for Jesus. Lord, may we remember him this week, throughout our week. May we recognize that he is the authority in our lives. We are not the authority over our lives. He is. We are carrying out his will. He's given us instructions about what we ought to do in life. He has given us those instructions because he knows that we are able to carry them out. He didn't give us anything that we can't handle. May we walk in the authority that he's given us. May we not worry about our circumstances. May we give them over to you time and time again, knowing that you are our authority. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for this 
time we've had to spend in your word to worship you. We thank you for this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.